0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Um, And we're thrilled to be here um, with you sharing some of our best research. So what we've learned this week is that Australia and India have much to learn from each other. So we've been part of a delegation where we've been visiting universities, we've been talking with students, potential students, industry partners, um, government, um, about how we can work more closely together and how um, Australia and India can build on the relationship that we already have. And what we've learned is that our ambitions are so similar that we actually want the same things. We want the same things for our children, we want the same things for our family, um, we want to achieve the same things and that we face similar problems, particularly around energy and the future direction of our cities. So tonight we have three researchers here from the Business School Urban Planning and Science, and they will give you an insight into some of the projects that they're working on in this area. So the colleagues that we have here today are Dr. Turan Alazadeer, whose research around smart cities is based in India, and asks, what is it that we want from our cities in an age of rapidly evolving technology? We also have Dr. Girish Lakarani, who will draw on his research and energy to explore the parallels and complementary differences between the Indian and Australian experience. While um, Professor John Shields um, has been thinking a lot about the nature of leadership, and suggests that there's a heart of darkness at the core of corporate Australia and that we need to reframe our thinking about leadership. And perhaps we can learn from Mahatma Gandhi in this regard. The Vice-Chancellor will then give you an update on other initiatives at Sydney, including our scholarship programme. I just realised I forgot to say who I was. (laughs) That was very rude of me, I'm sorry. So I'm Tanya Rhodes-Taylor, I'm the Vice-Principal of External Relations here at the University of Sydney. So let's get started. I'd like to invite up Professor John Shields, please. John is Academic Director at um, the University of Sydney Business School and is a Professor of Human Resource Management and Organisational Studies in the discipline of work within the Business School. He's an um, an experienced educator in the human resource management field with particular expertise in performance management and reward management. John, over to you.
2: Thank you, Tanya. I've been thinking a lot lately about the things that our two countries, India and Australia, share in common and the things that differentiate us. The things that differentiate us are worthy of noting. You have a much larger population than we do. You're a republic. We're not. One day we might be. (laughs) There are many other things, though, that unite us. We do, I'm told inhabit the same continental plate I didn't know that till this morning <laughs> we have at least sections of our society a love of cricket but we and golf apparently but we also share a passion for the power of education and that's why we're here tonight I think all that adds up to an opportunity for mutual learning between our two countries. And I mean by that, bilateral learning. So what I want to talk to you tonight about is one area where I think, I want to argue at least, that Australia has a great deal to learn from your country. And it has to do with values around leadership, and values organizationally. I think a lot about these aspects and so do my colleagues because we have been wrestling for a long time now with how we develop bright young business and management graduates to be leaders of the future with a passion and a purpose. To have impact other than to simply generate profit for shareholders, that's important but there are higher order aspirations, we think. Back almost 10 years ago now, one of your native sons, uh, Professor Shrikant Datta, who is from or hailed from, from Mumbai and is a professor at Harvard Business School, wrote a book called Rethinking the MBA, or co-authored a book called Rethinking the MBA. In that book, Dattar and colleagues argued that simply filling the heads of MBA students full of stuff, full of facts, was simply inadequate to the purposes and the challenges of the 21st century. And he was really criticising US business schools, quite rightly in my view, for becoming too theoreticist and for lacking A focus on application to practice. The model that you see on the overhead signifies the three principles that Datar and colleagues said should be at the heart of business and management education. Yes, knowing stuff is important. Knowing how to construct and interrogate a balance sheet. But they also said, you need to know how to apply technical knowledge of that sort, application to practice. But higher still, they said, was the challenge of developing bright young men and women as business and management graduates who had a sense of professional integrity. And the word that they used to characterize this aspiration was being not just knowing, not just doing, but being in and of the world and having a sense of your responsibility to everything around you, to the society, to your peers, to the wider environment within which you operate. The principle of being, I think symbolizes where as business educators we have now landed in terms of our mission as educators and researchers. And I think the code that best captures this sense of education for being is in the UN principles of responsible management education. There are six principles, relax, I'm not about to walk you through the lot. The first two though, I think, capture the essence of the UN principles what business and management educators should be seeking to do in developing graduates. The first is purpose. First principle is purpose. Purpose is not about passing exams, that's just a means to an end. Purpose is about investing in graduates a sense that they have a responsibility to the environment, to the wider society. And of course, to people close to them, their family, to use the privilege of education for a positive wider purpose, particularly a purpose to do with sustainability, business sustainability, environmental sustainability. That's purpose. The second closely related UN principle is value or values. The values of responsibility, of integrity, of sustainability. That is what we are seeking to do, but I'm here to tell you tonight that things don't look all that rosy on the Australian corporate culture front. Recently, we had a Royal Commission of Inquiry into misconduct in the banking, superannuation, and financial services sector, the so called Hain Royal Commission. And the evidence generated by that Royal Commission was absolutely sobering. It highlighted many areas where our biggest retail banks and our biggest investment banks and our biggest superannuation providers were letting not only society down and their, their clients and customers down, but they were letting themselves down in terms of behaving integrity and transparency and consistency. And if you read the Australian media this week you will see that some of the reverberations of that Royal Commission are still echoing through the Australian financial services sector. The leadership of one of our big four banks looks to be in a very shaky situation because of um, issues to do with lack of compliance with government requirements around money laundering. This again signifies a major cultural problem, I think, in our financial services sector. I don't have time to tell you about some of the more tragic examples that the Royal Commission surfaced, Um, but they had to do, for example, with selling insurance policies to um, folk who were disabled and unable to make judgments about whether the policy was appropriate for them or not. So high-pressure salespersonship um, charging fees to people who had passed on, continuing to, to, uh, to charge fees. I can't go into the chapter and verse, it's, it's rather too depressing, but the impact uh, of the evidence surfaced by the Royal Commission um, has, I think, had a telling um, impact on thinking about corporate culture in Australia, and as the tabloid Daily Telegraph front page screams there, there's been a violation of trust. And it is the case in terms of the Governance Institute of Australia's annual survey of public perception of Australian business that uh, public perception of business ethicality has gone through the floor in financial services. It is in the negative terrain for the first time ever. Why? We can't do anything about this until we identify what the root causes of the issue is, what I put up here are some of the realised final pay receipts uh, of Australia's most highly paid CEOs <coughs> in financial year 2018. The numbers don't mean a lot, except that they're telephone book size. Multiply them by 50, and you've got uh, rupee values. I think that's right. Well, the Australian dollar has been falling. The <laughs> exchange rate may be different again now. Um, what? What? What we're seeing here is executive level excess and what sits under that is non-executive excess in terms of a culture (coughs) committed to generating profits through sales irrespective of client needs. That is the heart of the cultural problem. That the Australian financial services sector appears to be confronted by. So the problem with sales culture essentially is an overemphasis on remuneration through commission sales. So mortgage brokers absolutely incentivized to push mortgage loans onto to customers who couldn't service, by any stretch of the imagination, couldn't service the debt. But the broker gets the commission. The second area I think of dysfunction in Australian corporate life, and there is a link back to India, just bear with me for a moment, is that I think it's reasonable to argue that there is still a grudging embrace in Australian corporate culture of what leadership researchers call the dark triad. No one trumpets that they're a narcissist. No one trumpets that they're a Machiavellian. No one trumpets that they're they're a psychopath. But those characteristics, those dark side characteristics, do certainly lurk in the shadows in terms of what gets recognized and rewarded um, in particularly the financial services sector. Another problem, I think, with Australian corporate culture is that company directors look far too much like me, probably a foot taller, Um, but older white Anglo-Celtic males, we're doing a bit better now with uh, gender inclusion. I forgot what the latest ratio is, I think it's about 22% of Australian listed company directors are women, but we're still appallingly poor with inclusion in terms of ethnicity. Still very poor. It's still very much an Anglo culture of men and women. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because what you've got there is a structural guarantee for groupthink and self-referential decision-making. But those three problems I've highlighted, I think, paid into insignificance compared to the problem that I want to refer to now. And that is the problem of an ethical compass in Australia that I think is arguably not fit for purpose in the 21st century. So that the two gentlemen that you can see there, Immanuel Kant on the left, and John Stuart Mill on the right, are regarded as the father figures of modern European ethical reasoning. Immanuel Kant, of course, the architect of a humanist ethical frame. Do no harm to humans. That's the Kantian precept. Do no harm, in brackets, to other humans. Doesn't matter about the environment. It doesn't matter about other living creatures. John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century liberal philosopher, a utilitarian ethic informs his approach. A utilitarian ethic, very commonly threaded through corporate governance regulations today, utilitarian ethic posits that the outcome justifies the means. So a humanist ethic, limited ethical frame, a utilitarian ethic, it's about outcomes, whatever it takes, how you get there. The problem we have with those frameworks is that they are frameworks for the 18th and 19th centuries. They are Western Arguably imperialistic frames of thinking about humanity and about our place in the universe, our place um, on this planet. And they say next to nothing about other living creatures or about the environment. We can't afford to ignore the environment anymore as a fundamental ethical frame. And that's why we do see significant emphasis now on the issue of sustainability in business practice. It's nowhere near strong enough in my view yet, but we are seeming to get there. But I've been thinking, you know, how much further can we push enlightenment and early 19th century ethical frames in the 21st century, in the era of the fourth industrial revolution? And I'm thinking perhaps there are other ways we should be thinking about how to think about what is right and wrong in corporate culture. So a year or so ago, I started reading um, some um, of the thought uh, of uh, Gandhiji. Um, And what really struck me um, in um, his thinking was the very strong emphasis on the role and responsibility of leaders as trustees. not as charismatics, but trustees. So the, uh, the, the Gandhian ethic, about which I'm sure most of you will know a lot more than I ever will, um, is the flip side of the seven dangers of human virtue. So a Gandhian, the Gandhian virtue ethic really is, um, if t- is to do with subverting those seven points there. For those who are back, I'll read them quickly. Wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, business without ethics. There it For Science without humanity, what does that tell you about climate change? Um, six, religion without sacrifice. I need to think more about what that really means. Seven, politics without principle. I think you know what that means. Um, you flip all that on its head and you've got a Gandean, the Gandhian virtue ethic in essence. I don't know about you, but that works for me as a set of precepts. I'm not saying that there aren't Western leadership theories that touch on some of these things. So here are some. Stewardship theory looks a lot like the notion of trusteeship. The the ideal of distributed leadership looks a lot like it. Servant leadership looks a hell of a lot like what Gandhi was professing. But I think in a Gandhian virtue ethic, we've got at least an opportunity to start to rethink the ethical compass points that should be informing organizational life in the 21st century, in the era of artificial intelligence, in the era of climate change, in the era where our young people have a passion, a yearning for education, and to be allowed to leave the planet a better place than it was when we handed it to them. So that's my argument, I think it's time to tackle the heart of darkness in corporate culture, not just in Australia, by looking to ethical frames that sit outside of a Eurocentric way of thinking about ethicality. Thank you very much.
1: So I'd like to um, introduce our next speaker. So our next speaker is Dr. Turan um, Alizida. Um, Turan is a senior lecturer and director of urban design at the University of Sydney um, School of Architecture, Design and Planning. And she's a recipient of the prestigious Research Accelerator Fellowship. In her work, Turan utilises cross dis- cross-disciplinary that's difficult to say. Cross-disciplinary knowledge and methodologies to gain new vital perspectives into the ever-growing complexities of the cities in the age of advanced technological challenges and opportunities. And that, in summary, means that Chuan looks at how we live in cities.
3: I often wonder how I lived my life before mobile phones. How did I know where I needed to be next without the calendar app? How did I find my ways in the city without the Google map on the phone? Or even, how did I reach to my husband to tell him that I'd be late? Seriously, how did I survive before phones, smartphones? Let me do a quick check to see if I'm the only one. Can I please have a show of hands? Hands up if you have a smartphone on you right now. Okay, and now please keep your hands up if you have checked your phone in the last two hours. Okay, good. That pretty much suggests that we all are in this room. Which means that digital companies, whether it is Apple, Google, or Samsung, have that we need the smartphones to function, and who am I to question that? I can't even remember how I lived my life before them. Today, however, I'm here to t- talk about something that's bigger than smartphones: the smart cities. These are the cities that use technology to function, whether their traffic management security, or it also includes those who have a huge ICT sector and city's economy depends on high-tech jobs. I'm here to talk about the smart cities because the government of India is developing 100 smart cities as we speak. Indeed, development of 100 smart cities is the core of what is known as a smart cities mission in India. The government has committed equ- okay. I can do it. Uh, the government has committed equivalent of 16 billion U.S. dollar to the national mission, so it is real. You may, however, wonder what does it exactly mean to develop 100 smart cities. Um, that is my research question too. Indeed, if I'm being honest, I'm interested to understand how you plan and then build 100 smart cities. Today, specifically, I want to talk to you about how smart cities are governed, or smart cities governance in India, and how they look like on the ground. Or to use an academic, basically, jargon, smart cities place outcomes. But before we get there, I should perhaps tell you that in my research, I look at the global trends of smart cities. And when I say global, I mean it. I'm not one of those who assume that the Euro-American notion of how cities work is universal. As if when you study London, New York, or Barcelona, you have the answers for all other cities. No. If anything, I Live in the south and there. This is a map of global south, when 80% of the world population lives in. You can easily find in the other. I am fascinated by the fact that the largest cities of our time all are located outside the Euro-American zone. The fast rate of urban translation and urban transformation in the global south gets my blood boiling. And by now, you have perhaps picked up that I don't have the usual Aussie accent. That means that I'm a first-generation Australian, lucky to call more than one place on Earth home. I was born and raised here. Let's see if I can find it. Yes. In Iran. The accent that you're hearing is Persian accent. I only moved to Australia just a tad further, as an international student to the University of Sydney, actually. That was over 13 years ago. Time flies, and that's another story for another day. Today, tonight actually, what you need to know about me is that I'm a woman from the Global South with a soft touch for the Global South in my research. For me, the South in turn means that it is time to turn towards the cities of the South, as the distinct experience of the Global South can generate productive and provocative frameworks for all cities. That is why I study smart cities in India. India is home to about 20% of world population, around 30% of Global South. So any new knowledge produced on smart cities in India has the potential to reconceptualize how we understand the subject worldwide. So far, my team and I have been able to collect empirical data from Pune, Solapur, Thani, and Nabi Mumbai. We have been to a number of smart city projects. We have gone through a pile of policy documents. And we have also talked to a bunch of urban planners, city officials, tech consultants, relevant NGOs, basically anyone who had something to do with the smart city planning and implementation. We have also been to Hyderabad when I was wowed with the size of ICT sector. Bigger than anything that I have ever seen, and I have seen plenty. We have immediate plans to do more research in Buneshwar and Chennai, actually in the next few weeks. And I will be back to do work in Jaipur, Ahmedabad, and Bangalore, just in the next few months. So fair to say that my team and I have been keeping busy. And when I say my team, it includes a wonderful, talented PhD student from India, Deepthi Prasad. Deepthi arrived in Australia in 2015 to complete a Master of Urbanism in our School of Architecture, Design, and Planning. She shined throughout her study and showed a specific interest in a smart cities mission. So I invited her to apply for a PhD that we had on a smart city subject, for which she was successful. Deepthi's family weren't really sure as they didn't want her to stay away for much longer but they loved the idea of Dipti working on a topic, smart cities in India, that was relevant and important to the country. So Dipti stayed and became an important part of my research team. For that, I owe her family and all other families of our wonderful students, thank you. A big thank you for your contribution to our research. This work is a still unfolding, and I'm not pretending that I have all of the answers. It's a still early days for the country and for this research. But there are interesting themes that have started to emerge even in this uh, time. Let's talk about the smart cities governance. When you're dealing with developing 100 smart cities across the nation, there is a level of governance complexity that is fascinating. In the case of India, there is this innovative structure called a Special Purpose Vehicle, or SPV, as it is known around the place. SPV facilitates private-public partnership, which enables a lot of smart city projects on the ground. And there is a lot that is happening. Competition is fierce because each city needs to figure out what a smart means for them, They're applying for the next round of funding. They are competing to get the next big firm in, to get the next big international uh, city on board, or basically partner on board. So there is a lot happening. I, however, wonder if this sense of competition is at the cost of collaboration. And don't get me wrong. We have already identified cases in which progressive Indian cities, are reaching out to cities of US, Europe, and Asia to learn from their smart journeys. This app, specifically DigiTani, is actually the result of collaboration between Tani in India and Tel Aviv in Israel. We, however, are still looking to find any case of Indian cities working together. A large number of Indian cities going through the same issues around the same time. So you would think that learning from each other makes sense, especially when it comes to regional, bigger problems. We haven't seen any cases of that. Still looking. Another interesting theme is around place outcomes. This is where we measure the impact of smart city initiatives on each place and its people. We have been to quite a few cities and we have seen a large-scale ICT sector development like this. Major global ICT firms entering 2nd higher cities in India means high-tech job, means economic prosperity. It's a big deal. At the same time, we see these high-end luxury housing showing up next to the ICT sector to support the ICT sector for the ICT professionals. Right. We've also been to a number of uh, streets, urban parks, when transformation is in progress. Solar panels, uh, bike, um, share, share biking, e-rickshaw stands, uh, public um, uh, charging points, all sorts of smart furnitures are arriving uh, into Indian urban environments, which is great. There is, however, an underlying question. Who is this smart urban transformation for? Who is to benefit? There is a narration coming out of some of our interviews, especially with politicians, when they tell us that these smart city transformations are supposed to help the poorest of the poor. And I'm only borrowing that phrase from one of our interviewees. I have to admit, this is not what we have seen. If anything, the urban transformations that we have seen are there to help middle-class, educated India, which is fantastic. But when it comes to the urban poor, let alone the poorest of the poor, there is a feeling that they may be left behind from this smart journey. There is a feeling that this smart transformation may have unintended consequences by further marginalizing the poor. It's fair to say that the full potential of smart and smart technologies, when it comes to the poor, haven't been recognized yet. It is, however, the beginning. India has an amazing smart journey ahead of it, and I'm hoping to stay around, to observe it, to learn from it, and to share my learning with the rest of the world. Thank you.
1: I'd like to introduce our final talk of the evening, um, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Giresh Lankwani. So, Giresh is a senior lecturer in the School of Chemistry. He's an investigator in the Art Centre of um, Excellence in Exciton Science. And his research is focused on developing and using advanced spectroscopic methods to study optical-electric properties of novel nanoscale semiconductor materials for solar energy harvesting, polarization switching, and polariton light la- lasing. Now, I'm hoping that he's going to come up and actually explain what that means. So, please welcome um, Girish to the stage. Thank
4: you. Um, I'm glad that uh, Turan already kind of introduced the gadgets, and I. I can fairly assume that everybody has used gadgets, have gadgets. So I'll tell you, last night, actually, I got hooked on to a TV show called Sacred Games. And believe it or not, watched first episode, second episode, carried on third, fourth. And I just had to stop myself, because if I didn't, I would have missed this event because this binge-watching culture, and especially with sacred games, was really, really addictive. Now, the next thing I did was, actually, I looked up who actually was the creator of the show. I learned about that it's adapted from a TV series, or from adapted from a book. The next thing I did, I WhatsApped all my mates, they're talking about, oh, this is the series to watch. And actually, I gave Anurag Kashyap quite a lot of popularity. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the amount of energy that I spent in all of this? Watching the entire series, googling and figuring out who did it, what was, where the story came from, and then what's happening to a lot of people. Any guesses? Any guess? No? So the amount of energy I spend actually watching about half of the series, looking into its details, can power one household in a village for about two weeks. So now, if all of us didn't watch Netflix tonight, it's a hard thing, but if we do not watch Netflix tonight, we can actually power a village for about a few weeks. So this is actually some of the important points of putting this in context, is that we have to start thinking about energy, we have to become conscious about it. The fact what Turan was talking about smart cities, and if we have to build smart cities, it has to be on energy security. We have to start thinking about these things, and we have to become conscious about it. Just to give you a bit of context, let me see if this works. So what we see over here is just a bit of an idea on the global energy consumption. And if you see, we actually depend entirely on coal, crude oil, nuclear, and nuclear solar, and all renewables are actually a fraction of it. And this energy that you're seeing, which is about few hundred terawatts, is what Sun gives us in one hour. So, the amount of energy that the entire planet is using, you can get it from solar energy quite easily. If you look into the consumption per capita, you see that some of the countries actually top the charts, including Australia and India. Australia has a tough act to follow because the land mass is so big and the population is almost of the size of Delhi, if I include NCR altogether. So, they have to power it, they have to keep it secure, so the per capita energy usage is quite high. And same goes for a lot of other countries. So, the consumption is high and we have to figure out how we can make our energy secure. How can we make our future safe? How can we actually give our next generation a safer, not only a safer which is free of climate change, but also the fact that they can actually see our kids and our like kind of you know grandkids have a cleaner cleaner air to breathe in so let me tell you how we are going to do this with us three ways first we have to harvest we have to figure out how to harvest the entire solar spectrum that will give us a lot of power to play with then we have to figure out how to make efficient devices which actually consume less energy so that whatever the excess energy do you have you can actually put it or save it into your batteries or return it back to the grid. So we have to follow these three pathways. India and Australia have actually have booming economies which have relied a lot on coal. Australia is one of the largest producers of coal, and India is one of the largest consumers. And climate change is no secret. Be it bushfires that we have seen in New South Wales, which practically we face year to year, or it be the pollution that we have looked into northern India, all of that is fact of climate change. And we have to become conscious, as I said. But it's not that both the countries are not doing anything. Both the countries have a very strong relationship for actually tackling these problems. If you think about if I remember my teenage years, India used to have these solutions, like solar power calculators. I still remember their solar power calculators, solar heaters. And this was teenage years, 20 years back. I've gotten old, but I still remember those things. And if you think about the recent announcement that the Cochine is going to have solar, like entirely solar or the entirely renewable energy driven airport on hydroelectrics, is incredible. Australia, on the other hand, we have a national lab which has given us a lot of discoveries. And one of them is wireless internet, which we all take for granted and use it nowadays for information exchange. But apart from that, CSIRO, which is a national lab, is developing these solar cells which can tap most part of the solar spectrum. Now, pollinate energy is another example of how Australia and India work together, because pollinate energy is a social enterprise which actually goes from locals, which picks up locals and goes to slums and tries to figure out how can we help them with alternate energy solutions. It not only gives an entrepreneurial experience to locals out there, but it also empowers individuals to have a safer, cleaner energy sources. Now, for this past week, we have been visiting a lot of universities. I've been to IIT Bombay, Indian Institute of Science, and today I was in IIT Delhi, just to talk about energy. We had focus workshops on electrochemical energy storage, and what we see is tremendous enthusiasm and energy of what's going on. Interacted with students, we interacted with faculty, there's too much going on, and I think this is the synergy that we have been looking for. This is where we can get together towards the energy security solutions. Now, going back to India reminded me of my IIT days because I'm from IIT Kanpur, the better IIT. Now, I knew because this is important, because IITs always have a banter among ourselves. But jokes apart, it was quite nice to go back to IIT. It remembered, I remembered of some of my IIT days, especially the JE exam, which is actually one of the most toughest and I guess one of the most critical exams in my life that I ever gave. And it reminded me of the dreams I had. The, one of the dreams which I had is, OK, I come from Kanpur. Incidentally, I come from Kanpur. And now Kanpur is actually topping the charts as one of the most polluted, beating Delhi behind. At that stage, pollution was also bad. And one of the dreams I had, like, if I study well, and if I do good, then maybe I can actually provide or learn about renewable sources, can bring or learn about how we can apply them. My dreams became my parents' dreams. My parents' dreams become my grandparents' dreams. So all of us are in this together. And that's what one of the inspirational lessons, right from my family, right up to you, and talking to you guys just today at the reception also gave me the same feeling. The thing which I want to illustrate is what we have been doing. And I've been very fortunate that after leaving from IIT, I could go to different countries. I can learn. And now I'm back in... Sydney, which is where I have a small group, research group, which is where we are tackling energy security issues. The thing which is very important to tell you in my research, we are part of an ARC Centre of Excellence in Exiton Science, which is a multi-million, not billion, sorry, multi-million dollar kind of enterprise, which is supported by Australian Research Council and generously by the University of Sydney. So in our research, what we look is, for example, into solar energy harvesting. So the silicon panels that you look or you see on the roof of it, roof of your uh, roof of your home, is practically only harvesting a very small part of the solar spectrum. What we are doing is we are looking into organic molecules which can, in fact, tap the entire solar spectrum. One of the examples I'm carrying my in a pocket, which is this is a solar cell. This is completely bendable, and you can put it, on any substrate. So this is one of the illustrations of our research. Same, these same molecules can also be used for light emitting diodes, which is to make these exactly, to make these really really efficient devices. Let me show how it looks like. For people who can't see this, is actually this is the bendable picture that we, this is full of those molecules which can harvest this solar spectrum. Same molecules can also be put in to create light emitting diodes these are the diodes which are now in your iPhones and we have actually put these materials – sorry I keep thing, bringing things out of my pocket – these are molecules which are actually on this surface and you can see this light is actually guided. Now imagine if this was the window of your apartment, which is where most of the light goes through and rest of it actually goes onto the edges, which is where you can place your solar cells, so you can integrate the technology within the architecture. This is where the smart integration of architecture and renewable sources of energy working together to provide solutions. So these are the few examples that I'm talking about. Not only are we working on this, we are also using same molecules to build up organic lasers, which can be used for diagnostics and telecommunications. So As you would have seen, University of Sydney has kind of had one of the biggest delegations visiting. The idea is how can we strengthen the ties between these universities between universities in India and with, between University of Sydney, tackling these issues. And past whole week has been a tremendous experience on this. So next time, when you're actually looking into your Netflix shows or what doing a WhatsApp, remember it's high time we start paying back to the planet from which we have taken things for granted since the beginning of time. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So. I'd like to introduce the Vice-Chancellor now. The Vice-Chancellor, Dr Michael Spence, um, is going to come and wrap up our session for this evening.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this evening and to thank our panel again for their presentation. You'll have seen from just those snippets of the work of the university how much there is going on at the university that can richly engage with our Indian research partners. And so 60 people have been here from the university this week talking to um, institutions with whom we have existing collaborations that we'd really like to see grow um, right across the country. And sometimes it's been a logistical um, achievement to try and get everybody to the same to the right place at the right time. As we've been having those conversations, it's been clear that there's been a very significant temperature shift in India. That is, that our Indian partners um, are, are, like us, experiencing a real, um, a, a real surge in interest in this country in, in improving and increasing the intellectual and cultural exchange with Australia. That is, that in this country, just as in our own, there's a sense that for too long we've looked north and that conversations between powers in our region countries such as India and Australia are going to be increasingly important for the future prosperity and development of our region, um, particularly in times of geopolitical uncertainty. And so everywhere we've gone, um, we've had fruitful and engaging conversations that we've been able to take away um, to, 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 to build new ideas for our work here in this remarkable country. The university is aware that, um, uh, that that we have a lot to do in building our research collaborations and our student exchanges here in India. And so we've made the decision to have our first ever country-specific scholarship scheme. We'll be investing about half a million dollars a year in scholarships here in India. In, <laughs> um, in some full scholarships, in many $20,000 a year scholarships, and in even more $10,000 a year um, scholarships. As we make sure that the future leaders of Australia and the future leaders of India um, get to know one another better because that's the kind of um, social and political capital that we think is gonna be important for the future prosperity of the Indo-Pacific. And you'll see from the videos that you're about to see how very much that investment um, is paying off and the extraordinary young people that we've been able to welcome to um, the university as a part of the initials phase of this scholarship programme. And it's been um, my great privilege to visit some of their schools this week to congratulate the the, the, the schools on the winning of these scholarships and also to encourage others to apply. So I think now you're going to see the video about the scholarship programme, and I would just encourage you to let anybody you know Uh, anybody that you know that might be interested in coming to Australia to study, that these scholarships are available. So thank you very much.
5: And this is my first semester here studying software engineering. In India, 40% of our crops are wasted every year and not because of lack of storage facilities, but simply because they did not reach a storage facility on time. My idea is to create an application which connects the farmers to the nearby cold storage facilities and the markets. Currently, when the produce is made, the farmers simply do not know what to do with it, which is why it often goes to waste. But now, as soon as the produce is made, the farmer can simply update on the application that he has this particular crop and this quantity of the crop. And then the nearby coal storage facilities and markets can contact the farmer and make a deal with him. This has two advantages. One, it will increase the standard of living for the farmers because now the farmer is actually getting the profit for the produce that he has made. And secondly, since our country is already facing poverty and hunger issues, people cannot afford food. However, if this extra crop is actually made available to these people, then it can solve the hunger crisis that our country is facing right now. Receiving the scholarship of India has been absolutely amazing for me because it has given me an opportunity to study at a world-class university like University of Sydney. And I think that the knowledge that I gain here would really help me in developing this app and really help me solve the problem that the farmers in India face today.
6: Hi, I'm Madhulika Singh and I received the Sydney Scholar's India Scholarship. I'm studying a dual degree with Theatre and Performance Studies and International and Global Studies. My big idea is to talk the taboo. Have you ever noticed how people show only their happy sides on social media? I think the reason why they don't put up things that they are challenged by is because they associate negative aspects of their life with shame and being vulnerable is very very difficult and requires a lot of courage especially in societies like today where being strong is associated with being stoic and oftentimes being in denial or not addressing certain issues that you have and not talking taboo I think it is important to talk taboo. It is important to start discomfitting conversations that put you in uncomfortable spaces momentarily. My blog, titled Talk the Taboo, is a space through which I reach out to teenagers facing challenges that are not spoken about due to the prejudices associated with them, helping them overcome these challenges through a sense of solidarity, inspiration, and awareness. This blog has built a community of young adults who listen and understand with empathy the trials and tribulations of global significance faced by their peers. I believe it is important to start discomfitting conversations because it is only when we talk the taboo that we spark the process of opening our mindsets and building safe spaces for people dealing with trauma. These people can then meaningfully contribute to societies without the fear of being judged. The scholarship has essentially facilitated my being here at the University of Sydney, and I'm so excited to see what more I can do with it to promote my big idea.
0: So you'll have seen that the distinctive thing about our scholarship programme is that uh, it's not just awarded on the basis of academic merit or even academic merit and extracurricular idea the, uh, uh, um, activities. You both have to be a very strong scholar and also have a demonstrated record of participating in school life and all the rest of it. But the key part is that you have to write an essay about your big idea for India, because it's genuinely a scholarship about leadership. It's genuinely about making sure that the leaders of our country and the leaders of India form deep bonds for a secure future for the region. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you again for our panel. um, And please do keep in touch with the University of Sydney. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore
6: ideas.